0: All right, you guys, well, we're going to be opening up the Bible this morning, and if you didn't bring one, no problem, we're going to have scriptures and slides up on the screen for you to follow along. And we have been in a series called Relationship or Religion, and the subtitle is called Confronting the Chains of Legalism. We are talking about what is this thing called the Christian faith, how do we define it, and where do we get our ideas from? And I've been talking about the beginning of each of these messages, the best definition I think I've ever heard that was real simple, two to four words, was that uh, Jesus wants a relationship, not religion, right? So we've been kind of defining this because I just truly believe this is that um, people, many Christians read the same Bible and come to all sorts of different conclusions. And on Sundays or if you've grown up in church, uh, you don't always hear the stuff The other stuff or the other stories in the Bible that sometimes as Christians, we just kind of like, we're like, well, we just kind of wish that weird story about people being slaughtered wasn't there. Or, well, slavery, I just kind of want to brush that under the, oh, oh, what polygamy, oh, well, let's just kind of erase this from the scripture, right? Because here's what we do. We live in a day and age where people can Google anything that they want, and they can come up with any sort of conclusions about the Bible without actually reading it. So in this series, what we've been doing is we've been unpacking this idea. What's the big picture of the Bible? Who is this God that we worship? How do we bring an appropriate lens towards the Bible in understanding and interpreting and applying what God calls his word to our lives in in, in seeing a clear picture of this God that that, that asks us to give him our lives, to lay down our lives for him. So uh, to give us kind of a, a... Uh, caught up in this series, Um, we're at a point in this series, I would encourage you, oh, yes, we have a definition of legalism as well. Um, This is helpful. What do we mean by legalism? Strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. I would beg to argue in this series that God has more for us than, than legalism. I believe he approaches humanity seeking relationship and chooses to be a God who walks within time with us. Bearing with us in the midst of our lives. So last five weeks in this series, uh, we're at a point. I would encourage you, if you've missed any, you can go back on YouTube. Look us up on YouTube, Ponca City Church. Go to our website, poncacitychurch.com. Click on the button watch. You can get caught up. We also have a church app. You can just pull out your phone right now. Go on the App Store, Android, iOS, and search Ponca City Church. Everything, all the, all the resources are there available for you to get caught up. But in the, in the last few weeks of this series, I just want us to get caught up into this morning. I just believe that each and every one of us, we're average Joe Bible readers. Um, Some of us are called to be scholars to really investigate the Bible. But where we are in this series, just to kind of get us caught up, is that this idea that the ancient world functioned on something we call covenants. And this is key to our understanding of the Bible and how the Bible unfolds from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end. So the ancient world functioned on covenant agreements between two parties that are legal and binding and each covenant typically had a history of how the parties walked out this covenant together. This body of literature is called a canon. And here's the big picture as we dive in this morning. God acts in accordance with the covenant he is in. Sometimes you read a story in the Bible, you're like, that's weird. You know, I grew up in a, we, we, grow, we grew up in a western environment, a western country, you know, in the day and age that we live in. And, and sometimes you read stories in the Bible and you're like, that doesn't really apply too much to me. Or that doesn't really make too much sense. Why did God act the way that he did in that circumstance? Well, the key to unlocking this is understanding that God acts in accordance with the covenant that he is in. And the Bible is filled with different covenants at different points. And if we read the Bible chronologically and begin to unpack these covenants, it's going to help us unlock why God makes the decision he makes and how that relates to us in our relationship with God Today, I believe we can see a clear picture of God. Okay, so the next slide here, we're gonna gonna look at this. And here's where we've been at at this point in the series. We're looking at the five major covenants and their canons, that body of literature that surrounds these moments where God makes a covenant with humanity between God and humanity in the Bible. Okay, here we go. Last week, we talked about the first one, the Noahic covenant. This is the first covenant that happens. It talks about Noah and the flood. If you grew up in church, you're really familiar with this story. This is the one we talked about last week, where, where basically God makes a covenant to promise to not, basically surround the world with a flood and and basically reset and restart humanity, right? So that's the one we talked about last week. That's the first one. If you're reading the Bible chronologically, you you come across. The second one is the one that we're going to zoom in on this morning called the Abrahamic covenant. And that's where we are at part six in this series. The next covenant that we see is uh, the Mosaic covenant. We get that, that last slide back up there. The Mosaic covenant, also known as the old covenant is really the one that kind of throws us off, and we're building into this one. But bear with us as we kind of set the stage. Number four is the Davidic covenant, a covenant that God makes with with the leader David, King David in the Bible, many of us are familiar with. And number five is the covenant, the new covenant, the one that we currently, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, we reap the benefits from this covenant. So we understand that God acts today in accordance with that covenant. And each one of these covenants happen at a different point, and each of them uh, have different T- types and outcomes and understanding why God acts the way that he does at that portion in the Bible as God reveals himself progressively throughout the biblical narrative. Now, let's, let's keep going here. And I, I just want to say this uh, as we continue. We're going to be doing something really soon that we're excited about called Conversation Sunday. And I've been saying this every week. And we're just asking that you as, as people that maybe have questions about the Bible. Maybe you're a person, as we've been in the series, and and we've been, you know, this is a very teaching-heavy series, that there's some new ideas or some fresh ideas that maybe you've never thought about before. We want to give an environment that's just really open to answering some of the questions that not only I have, our church staff has, but maybe you have as a person doing your best to follow Jesus. So in a few weeks after our series, we're going to be doing this thing called Conversation Sunday. And until we do that, we're asking people to ask questions, because we're going to spend that Sunday answering these questions, and even if you're a first-timer that Sunday, we're going to have a way that you can actually spontaneously respond and ask a question. And we're going to leave a little bit of time to a- answer some of those questions that people submit. But I'm so excited about this because I just truly really believe, once again, that church is not meant to be a monologue. We are a community with multiple voices. And when our voices come together, our skills come together, we really do represent what Jesus calls his church, the bride of Christ. We are better together. Amen? Amen. Well, let's, let's pray before we start this morning. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness, your graciousness, Lord. We're just thankful that we we get to see your love a little bit more clearly this morning. Lord, we're thankful that as we dive into your word, new things about how deep, how wide, how great your love is are going to come to the forefront as we just look into your word. Even from the early pages of the Bible, we're going to see this morning some, some love notes that you left behind that set the stage for how we understand and see you today. So, Lord, move in our midst. Lord, would we open our hearts and and really truly embrace all that you would have for each and every one of us this morning? Would we come with enough faith to understand that, Lord, you want to deposit something for each and every one of us personally this morning? So, Lord, we're thankful for the ways that you speak to this church, this body, but also the ways that you choose to work and walk through humanity in each and every one of us. So, Lord, we're open to all that you would have today. In Jesus' name. Everybody said Amen, amen. So this morning we are looking at the Abrahamic covenant, which is surrounded upon this biblical character, Abraham. And um, this, this covenant really exists between Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12 to about Genesis chapter 50. Um, this morning we're going to summarize and we're going to look at some key events, and those events happen around Genesis chapter 12 through 25. So we're really we're just looking at the first book of the Bible and how the stage is being set up. For us in how we understand Jesus and how we understand how we relate to God today. So we're going to hit some key moments. And uh, as we begin, the story just begins, the story we're going to look at, at this character, Abram, um, really just leads with a lineage. uh, From the flood, Noah's flood, as Noah's family begins to expand on the earth, the biblical narrative leads us to a place where it leads to the lineage of this character, Abram. And we get to Genesis chapter 12 and we're introduced to this character. And this is where we're going to pick up this morning. It says, the Lord said, said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here's the kicker. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is key for us to understand that what God speaks, proclaims, and promises here." Through the character of Abram is a means to a global end. God has a larger vision in mind. God has a small seed that he's planted in the life of Abram with a bigger picture and a vision that's going to unfold throughout the biblical narrative. And I love it because this is in the early pages of Genesis. We see God progressively revealing himself in different ways. He is God the creator. He is almighty God. He has proven himself to be the one and only God who's higher above any other God up to this point in the scripture. But other than that, we don't know too much about him. So what we do know is this is a God who's making promises. He's making promises, and he's he's expecting the promise to be fulfilled through one man. That the seed is being planted in his relationship with a human being. And it's interesting for Abram during this time. If you know the rest of the biblical narrative, Abraham, you know the Bible later on talks about Abram being the father, one of the fathers of the faith, right? And it's interesting because Abram didn't know that there was a religion about to be started, didn't know that the, the, the basically Israel was about to turn into this religion called Judaism, he had no idea. All he knew is he was going to be a person that was going to start this massive family. He was going to be a person that was going to be multiplied out through his family into a great nation that was going to be a blessing, right? But it was a means to a global end. And we, we later know as we read that this family ends up expanding into this great nation that we know today as Israel, Right? Israel was this nation, and this this is what God promised, but he had no clue in terms of the spiritual impact and the faith impact that he was about to have at this point in the narrative. He couldn't have seen what God was about to do and was about to stir up through his life. So we continue in the biblical narrative, and, and crazy stuff happens. How many of you guys know this? You follow God, you, you, you try to be as obedient to God, and sometimes sometimes you take steps of faith, and then crazy stuff happens, and you hit some obstacles, So Abram and his family, they're moving to this land that God's promising. A famine breaks out. Man, they have so many resources. Abram's bringing his wife, his nephew, Lot. Well, Lot, he's a business guy. They've got all sorts of resources. Well, all the people on Abram's side with his resources and Lot's side, well, they kind of start quarreling. So So basically, Lot has to move. He goes and lives somewhere else because he's like, hey, it's better for you just to keep moving, doing your thing. God's told you, okay, Lot, I'm going to move over here. Well, Lot, he ends up getting captured. So Abram, as a great family member, he decides to go and uh, show everybody who's boss what God is on his side. And he goes and he saves Lot who's captured by this other nation that tries to pillage and take them over. And basically we get to this point where this king is so thankful because a byproduct of Abram going and being the hero, going being the savior is a king who's so thankful because his resources and his people also got stolen. So this king, he offers Abram, he says, hey, you helped me out, you're the hero, you're the savior. Can I give you the goods that you helped save Can I give those things back to you? And that's where we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 14 and how Abram responded to this king who is offering to be so gracious because of what Abram had done. It says this, Genesis 14, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich." I will accept nothing but when my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Ener, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. And this is such an interesting response. But what we have to understand is the king of of Sodom was trying to enter into a covenant-type relationship with Abraham. And at this point, this is is exactly what the Lord did not want. He was entering into this relationship, giving promises to Abram, saying, Hey, you need to trust me. I'm going to be the one that goes to battle for you. And in the meantime, we have this guy who's offering free resources, but Abram's like, No, I can't. I can't base my success off of anything else other than this Lord who has promised me this vision that things are going to come to pass, things are going to come to fruition. And we get to Genesis chapter 15, and of course, God is pleased with Abram. He's pleased with his obedience. And I love the beginning of chapter 15 in Genesis because God is basically speaking over Abram, saying, encouraging him, letting him know that, man, the plan's, the plan's happening. Through your family line, you're going to receive blessing. Be encouraged because of your obedience. But in Abram's mind, you know what he's thinking? My wife is barren. We haven't gotten pregnant. I'm getting older and these things don't seem to be coming to fruition. In fact, the only person that could be his rightful heir at that time was a servant because they did not have any kids of their own. And if you knew anything about ancient time during that time is that, man, this meant everything. Being able to pass your legacy down to the son, the oldest son, which Abram didn't have right in front of him. So it created this kind of trust in, in Abram, that he had to place his faith in a God where things in front of him did not look like they were actually going to happen. So God makes all these promises, and Abram's, we're going to look at Abram's response. Genesis chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. It says this, God speaks to Abraham, Abram in his discouragement. It says, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, speaking to him about his servant. But a son who is your own, flesh and blood, will be your heir. He took him outside and said, this is God speaking to Abram. Look up at the sky, count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Key moment here. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. What was in front of Abram were not promising circumstances. But God reassured him once again, said, don't lose heart. Be encouraged. I know that it doesn't look like your legacy is going to be handed down, but believe me. And the Bible sets up sets up something so key here in the early pages of the Bible that Abram believed, placed his faith in God, and that faith was credited back to Abram as righteousness. He was in right standing with God. And over the next couple of verses, it's interesting because what happens is almost a covenant-type ceremony begins to be set up. What was custom, if you were getting into a covenant, two parties are coming together for a covenant, what would what would happen, and it seems crazy to us in our Western minds, but you would slaughter an animal, chop that animal in half, and you would do what would be called a cutting covenant ceremony. And both parties would walk through the half of this animal, and both would make this declaration that if I don't keep my end of the bargain, I'm as good as this animal that is slaughtered, because I haven't kept my end of the bargain. So the biblical narrative shows us that Abram, he begins to set the stage for this covenant agreement to happen between him and the Lord. He wants to engage with the Lord in this covenant and understanding that. I believe what you're telling me, God. I'm going to have faith even though my circumstances don't show me right now in this season, but I'm going to believe you have a bigger picture and vision for my life. So this covenant type ceremony is set up by Abram, and then we get to Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, a few verses later as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. falls asleep. Hasn't performed the, the covenant ceremony, but Abram, anybody get tired? I'm the type of guy, man, during the week. <laughs> Callie and I, we try to watch, like, some of these Netflix shows, you know. It's like one episode in, I'm done. You know what I mean? She's like, come on! Like, there's just no binge watching in our house, right? Because I just get so tired, you know what I mean? In the evenings, I'm just out. Um, he falls into a deep sleep. It says, a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Uh, Cats out of the bag. This is prophetically God speaking forward something that's going to happen that we know happens later in the Bible, right? Moses takes Israel out of their slavery within Egypt. So God's saying, hey, this is going to happen. Yeah, things not might not look clear for you right now. Well, guess what? This nation that I'm building, guess what? Things aren't going to be uh, super awesome all the time for them. But here's what I'm going to promise. I'm, I'm getting you guys out of there. You're going to be enslaved. This is, this is what's going to happen. But I promise I'm going to get you guys out. Verse 14, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will... Come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Talking about the pieces of this slaughtered animal, right? This covenant ceremony. And it says, on that day, here it is, key, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. But Abram's asleep. He didn't perform the ceremony and said to your descendants, I give this land From the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Gadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gershites, Jebusites. Okay, name after name, nation after nation, right? He's like, hey, this is going to multiply. This is the promise. It's going down. Covenant ceremony happens. But it's interesting because Abram wasn't even there to perform his part of the covenant on his portion that he was supposed to get into this agreement with. He didn't do his part in the covenant ceremony. This is where understanding how covenants works really helps out. Uh, helps us out. And we're going to look at this next slide. Three main types of covenants exist in the biblical narrative. And this is going to be key to unlocking, once again, why God responds in the ways he responds. In terms of the covenant that God was in at a specific point in time in the biblical narrative. Three main types. Here they are. Number one, what we call a grant covenant. Number two, a kinship covenant. And number three, a vassal Covenant. so let's define each of those because we're going to try to figure out what types of covenants are being set up as we learn about these types of covenants in the Bible, okay? The Grant Covenant, let's talk about that first. The Grant Covenant was an awesome covenant. This is one where a covenant when a greater and lesser person came into covenant. And the greater one took on all of the obligations. The lesser one only needed to receive the covenant. So basically it's a higher party making promises to a lower party. Receive the blessing of my power, my authority. The next type of covenant we see in the biblical narrative, main type, is the kinship co- covenant. This is a covenant when two equal parties come together as in marriage. In our Western perspective, we understand the kinship covenant at a good level because we understand what a marriage looks like, what that covenant looks like. It's a kinship covenant. Each party takes on a small list of obligations in the covenant. This type of covenant had a small set of obligations and it was very evenly divided between the two parties, right? So this is what we would call our vows that we make to one another in the biblical marriage covenant, right? A kinship covenant was also referred to as a parody covenant. And then the last type of covenant, main one, we see in the biblical narrative is a vassal covenant. This is a covenant when a greater and lesser person came into covenant based on the greater one's ability to destroy the lesser one. This is not a good one. Instead of destruction, the greater one offered the lesser one safety In exchange for the ability to collect taxes, tribute, take slaves, and so forth. Typically, this happened when a king conquered a nation and offered the people of that nation their lives in exchange for a level of servitude to his harsh rule. As a result, in this covenant, the greater person had all the power, and the lesser person had to fulfill a large number of obligations. A vassal covenant was also referred to as a suzerain covenant. Three main types of covenants. So which one are we talking about that was just made between God and Abram? Well, the one that was made between God and Abram, since God decided to do the ceremony all on his own, would be called a grant covenant. One greater party, one greater person that's making the covenant saying, I'm larger, I'm greater, and here are the promises and the blessings I am making. You get to be the benefactor. You get to receive the blessings that come with this type of covenant. Of covenants. This is why in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, now we're getting into farther, we're we're zooming ahead to the end of the Bible, talking about new covenant canon literature that directly applies to our benefit. That's why in the book of Hebrews it says this, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. He swore by himself. He performed the ceremony on his own without the other covenant partnership, which is very interesting, right? He swears by himself and basically saying, hey, uh, the death threat that is made when we make a covenant, that's on me if I don't fulfill the obligations. I'm swearing this upon myself because I'm going to prove to you that I'm a God who is faithful. I'm going to prove to you that I am creator God. I am almighty God. I am the God up to this point in the biblical narrative who has revealed himself to be a powerful creator who is unlike any God. It's interesting because it didn't have any stipulations or promises that hinged on these. We talked about the covenant that God made with Noah. Once again, another grant covenant. One where God says, here's here's my end of the bargain. I promise to never flood the earth again, never to wipe the slate clean. That's what I'm gonna do. A grant covenant, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abram up to this point have both been grant covenants. One where people get to receive the benefits of this larger party, this greater, grander party. God did not say to Noah, I will never send a flood again to wipe out the earth unless no stipulations. And he did not say to Abram, I will give your descendants this land if, no, he made unqualified promises that did not require anything of the recipients. So we understand the type of covenant that God made. Well, let's let's summarize the the, the covenant kind of process that we've been looking at, and we're going to give a little, little bit We're going to go a little bit farther in some of the further processings in this part of the Bible. But let's just break this down. So here's how this went about. Genesis 12, God promised Abram five things. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. Everyone who blesses you will be blessed. Everyone who curses you will be cursed. And all your offspring will be a blessing to the whole world. Find that in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. In Genesis 15, God makes the covenant with with Abram, which we see. Genesis 15, 13 through 21, if you want to refer back to that. Moving ahead without actually going there, in Genesis 17, God began confirming the covenant by changing Abram's name to Abraham and by introducing the standard of circumcision. Now, we get into all the nuances of what that means, but what this was was an identity that God was creating within this nation, and he switches, he changes Abram's name to Abraham. Those names and characters are interchangeable. Just his name gets changed as God continues to be faithful. And then in Genesis 22, God finalized confirming the covenant through his test of Abraham, Abraham on Mount Moriah. You've ever heard of the story in the biblical na- narrative, Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham is faithful to offer his son as a sacrifice. And you might say, wait a second. That story is crazy, right? This might be one of the ones that comes up in the Google search for people who have actually like, opened up the Bible. Here's what we need to know about the culture during this time. Every other spiritual nation, it was common in the the day and age that these people lived in for Abraham to look at other people who were connecting spiritually with other gods and other spiritual nations, and it was commonplace for them to sacrifice infants for on the benefit of their God. What's so interesting about this for us is to understand that God tests. We know that it's a test. We know that God tests never once says that he's actually going to go through with this, but it's a test on that part of Abraham's faith. This would have been commonplace. Okay, my God's asking me to do something that's common for every other spiritual nation during this time, but what does God do as he shines through in his character? He doesn't actually allow Abraham to slaughter and sacrifice his son Isaac. The other thing we need to understand, and there was no laws that were forbidding murder up to this point in the Bible. How were people supposed to understand what was right and wrong In terms of the way that God expressed himself. Up to this point, we don't have laws. Navigating, helping people navigate in terms of how they would be obedient to their God during this time. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around it from our vantage point. But we got to try to. We got to try, especially in challenging stories like that one. We know it was initiated as a test. We know it wasn't God's desire. We know comparatively to other spiritual nations at the time, God showed his gracious character, his mercy. We go to Hebrews, once again, chapter 11, a new covenant perspective, end of the Bible perspective. It says this about this story, Abraham and Isaac. It says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. What a test. Once again, God's faithful. Isaac's born. This is his new heir. And now he's saying sacrifice it, right? But here it is. Here's where we understand about that story. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. His faith relied on the fact, said, okay, I'll do it. But I know, God, you're so faithful. You're so powerful. You've proven yourself so, to be so faithful up to this point. Even if I sacrifice him, guess what? You have the power to raise him from the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. He did it. He was faithful. He offered it. He was obedient to God, laying Isaac down at the altar. But once again, God did not actually kill him. He didn't even have to raise him. But man, look at Abraham's faith. One where he's saying, God, I trust you so much. I know death, not a big deal for you. I know you can raise him back from the dead. What a perspective that we get to see later on in the Bible concerning this old school event that we read early on in the pages of the Bible. But when Abraham received through this grant covenant, it was so large, so significant that we saw it. God chose to confirm it multiple times through Genesis chapter 12 through 22. Multiple moments. This was such a big covenant that was setting the stage for the rest of the biblical narrative. We see it kind of progress throughout different points. In Genesis, it wasn't just one time, but it was times where God was confirming his covenant, giving promises, and confirming his covenant time and time again. But here's here's the big thing. No no rules. No law at this time. That's that's later. The laws were given later. Up to this point in the Bible, there was no rules, no laws up to this point. What did Abram do? He simply walked in faith. Because he believed God, he was credited as righteous. This very simple understanding of a relationship with God is the picture that we see under the new covenant. Let me give you a, a few examples of this. Let's look at Romans chapter 4. Romans, this is, this is very applicable to us because this is the Apostle Paul, a guy who literally walked in the days of Jesus. Jesus personally encountered him, the resurrected Jesus. He saw the resurrected Jesus with his own eyes, experienced him, and now is beginning to write letters to churches, the early church, confronting things, addressing things, encouraging. So he's writing a letter to the Roman church, and this is what he says. He brings this character, this ancient character, Abraham in, and this is, what, this is how he encourages the church. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. It's like, I'm old. I can't have any kids. Since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, right? Here it was, the circumstance that was unbelievable, but God kept making promises, right? Verse 20. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. This is huge. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone. Here's where we get to come into this equation. But also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Because... Of this, we can get a clear picture on what it means to be righteous before the Lord. Is it based on laws and stipulations? Well, if we were to see the promise of God early in the pages of the Bible, see how that is fulfilled, we would understand absolutely not. But this is where it gets dicey for us as Bible reading Christians up against uh, people that Google search random stories. In the Bible, that seem kind of crazy. Crazy laws for a nation to follow that are hard to actually digest and understand. Is that many times we're talking about different covenants. Many times we're talking about different covenant relationships and agreements that God gets into with his people. One of those being the next covenant that we're going to talk about in this series. If we could get the next slide up there. Let's go back to this. The Noahic covenant, a grant covenant, a great covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, a great covenant where a lesser party gets to benefit. The seed is planted for a global impact through what Jesus eventually does. Well, next we're going to be talking about the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. And sometimes it gets confusing when we read the Bible on which covenant are we talking about and which ones are we benefited from and which ones are the ones that maybe don't apply to us anymore. Well, once again, as we read the Bible as a whole, the book of Hebrews gives us and helps us understand and have a clear picture of which ones apply to us and which ones do not. Let's read in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 9. The author of Hebrews, he writes and he says, but God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. So this is being referred to back to a promise that God gives, the new covenant that's going to be set up through Jesus, right? Right? Verse 9, here it is. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. This covenant will not be like the Mosaic, the old covenant. This one that gets promised 613 laws through Moses. It will not be anything like that covenant. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So the covenant that doesn't apply, the one that essentially gets replaced with the new covenant, that's not talking about this covenant that God makes with Abraham. But we understand more and more as we read the biblical narrative that Abraham's covenant, this covenant that God promised, it gets fulfilled through what Jesus has done for us. You know what's so interesting? If you've ever read the book of Galatians, To paraphrase it, it's literally the Apostle Paul writing to a church saying, hey, if you you mix something, don't mix together the new covenant, what Jesus has done, and the old covenant. The whole book of Galatians, that's what he's writing. Don't mix those things together. Do not mix these old laws and mix it into what Jesus has done. But for some of us as Christians, we've done this. We've we've literally had this tension between the laws of the old covenants and and what Jesus has done for us. And unfortunately, when we do that, we end up receiving the benefits of something that doesn't even apply to us. Because we can't fully step into the grace, love, power of what Jesus has promised us today. I love what Galatians says. If you read it, you understand he says, if you're going to mix two things together, mix and understand that Abraham's covenant is the one that gets fulfilled. The one that the promise from the beginning was one that I'm going to multiply my blessing out. And then we see how it plays out through the person of Jesus. That the Abrahamic covenant sets the stage for the new covenant. It's actually the fulfillment of what God promises the early pages of Genesis. But this is where we get so caught up in religion, church. We straddle two covenants we have a tension with a covenant that Jesus proclaims through the book of Hebrews that says this one it's obsolete. And if we're one foot in with this one, it means we can't be all in with the covenant Jesus has declared and given for us today in 2018 that we get to receive the benefits from God's promise To make a new covenant with his people that will not be like the covenant he made with their ancestors after he led them out of Egypt. This new covenant is not like the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It is like the one he made with Abraham. When God said this, as we see in the book of Galatians, he actually pointed back to this covenant that God made with Abraham which was based on walking with God by faith. We see that being solidified as we read the New Testament, that we are to be people that understand what gets us right standing with God. Is it following a bunch of laws? Is it being hyper-religious? Is it being structured and, and, and really bound up by rigid territory that if unless I do this, I will not please God. I would beg to argue that we see as it unfolds in the biblical narrative, God no longer operates within a covenant agreement that he never intended to get into with his people. But his people were the driving force moving forward so that what he needed to get fulfilled on this earth would get fulfilled through Jesus. We want to know what God looks like. Once again, we've been given the beautiful, perfect picture. Jesus himself walking on this earth. I want to put up that definition of legalism once again. Strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. My prayer is that as we've looked at this covenant and understand how it applies to us today, the Abrahamic covenant, we would understand once again that the character of God promises and points us to a really clear picture that Jesus wants relationship, not religion. He wants us to live out faith on a moment-to-moment basis, understanding that it's not our works, it's not our activity that allows us to be people that are righteous, but it's simply us making a decision of saying, I'm placing my faith in that God. I'm understanding, I'm believing in that God. The one who raised Jesus from the dead, I'm turning my life over to that God when we do that, the Bible promises we are counted as righteous. This morning, here's what I I believe we need to do. For some of us in the room, we need to break the chain of works. Some of us have a works-based idea of how to please God. And Jesus is, is, he wants those chains to fall to the floor this morning. He He wants to break those chains. Some of you have come in here maybe with a wrong understanding of God. Being ruthless and vindictive without understanding the context of how God chose to reveal himself and walk through humanity. And next week we're going to get a lot of clarity when we talk about the Mosaic Covenant. We're going to talk about those laws that sometimes throw us as Christians for a loop in answering some of the hard questions people have when they cherry pick random stories out of the law. We're going to deal with that and understand how that came about. It wasn't God's desire. Let me just give you a, a, a look ahead. But what we do know today is God has revealed himself in Jesus through his love, through his grace. And the legalism no longer has a place. Not under his covenant. Not under what he has established. God acts in accordance with the covenant he is in. You are not in a covenant relationship with God born out of 613 laws. You are based in a covenant with God based out of one factor that God says. Will you be a person that places your faith? And when you do that, you have right standing because you're trusting and you're in a relationship with the God of the universe. doesn't mean that things are going to be peachy and always perfect, but it means you're placing your faith in a God who promises on a moment-by-moment basis to give you everything that you need to accomplish the next obstacle. And even when the obstacle seems like it's bigger than our life, the biggest deal in the world, God allows that obstacle be to be turned around for your blessing and your good. That's the God that we worship under this thing called the new covenant. We're going to end on one scripture before we conclude this morning, and, and it's one out of Ephesians that really just sums all this up. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. This is what it is. This is what it looks like with God today. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. Not by religion. Not by what binds us up in legalism. So that no one can boast. Grace. The face of Jesus. God himself in the flesh. Through faith. By us, once again, Genesis to Revelation. We don't have two separate gods, two different stories. I hear time and time again, the God of the Old Testament is an animal. I see a God who's consistent in character from Genesis to Revelation. But are we reading the same thing? Are we missing the covenant relationship and what God has promised and how God has fulfilled that today? It is through faith, not by works, and it is a gift of God. Because we read in other parts of the Bible... But here's what happens. When people talk about Jesus, when people tell others about the good news of Jesus, the Bible says it's the power of God to save anyone who believes. Faith, faith, belief, belief. The prerequisite is for you to place your faith and believe in Jesus. Not to do yourself up. Not to put legalism over your life in order to prepare yourself to make, God, don't hurt me. No. That is not the covenant relationship God is in with you. It is not based on your human initiative or works. It is simply based on what Jesus has already done as the free gift. And he's just saying, would you respond to that free gift? Would you accept something under your life where I'm going to give you new hope, new vision. I'm going to give you new power. And I'm going to define love in a way that if you want to be a lover, I'm going to show you what it looks like. And it means dying to yourself. Once again, so many people are like, love I'm sick of love in the church. It's so namby-pamby. You know what's not namby-pamby? A love that's expressed through an excruciating death on the cross where Jesus said, these are my enemies, but I'm dying for them. And some of us, we get into church, we're like, it's all about me. That's namby-pamby. Because the minute we think it's all about us and we never think about the people outside these walls, we're following a false Christianity. We're following a different covenant. We're straddling two different covenants where we're in tension. We're so focused on this, we never actually go out and do the things that Jesus told us to do. We never actually beat church on a mission. We actually never understand that his love becomes defined not only by our moment where we have, where we say, God, your glory is so big. But the moment is followed up where we say, Jesus, when you told me to carry my cross, I'm going to actually go do it. I'm actually going to go serve my enemy. My enemies are no longer this nationalistic identity through Israel, but it's by what you've done through your son Jesus. And when I'm, I'm the most spiritual, when I'm choosing to carry my cross and serve other people, because we are defined not by 613 laws, but by one called the law of Christ, where we lay down our lives for other people based on what Jesus did for us. We are Christians. We are not Jews. Some of us have come in here straddling Ju- Judaism and Christianity. And I'm sorry to tell you, Christianity is all about Jesus. He's given us a new covenant. We love Israel and the Jewish people. We love them. But we understand it in light of everything else that doesn't apply to us. We're all in with Jesus. Can we be all in with Jesus as a church? Can we fulfill his mission? Because when we actually do that, you know what? Not many people have too many complaints about the church. We actually witness what people actually desire deep within their souls. We actually befriend people that look and think way different than we do. We actually don't force-feed discipleship and the standards of Jesus on people that are so far from him. Why would they have an appetite for it? But we lead out of a place of love through the law of Christ. And we show people what love actually means. And I don't know about you... In my lifetime, I haven't gotten myself up on a cross to die for my enemies. So even in the midst of our human initiative, we fall short of that definition of love. But each and every one of us have an opportunity each day to die for the benefit of someone else. I don't know about you, but that one law, that's that's difficult. But it's the new standard. And it's the one the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our hearts with each and every day. But many times, what do we choose? Selfishness, 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 selfishness. But that's why God calls us to lay down our lives, saying, you know what? My life, my breath, it's not my own, it's for the benefit of.